It's 1918, with a world war raging and a global pandemic killing even more. President Joseph F. Smith is surrounded by the sadness of death. Pondering the writings of Peter in the New Testament, the Lord opens a vision to President Smith. The beautiful revelation he received is discussed next in chapter 13, Heirs of Salvation. This is Saints, Volume 3, the podcast. Welcome to the Saints podcast. I'm Shailen Back. And I'm James Perry. Joining us today, we have George Tate, a professor emeritus of humanities and comparative literature from Brigham Young University, and Jonathan Stapley, a historian and scientist. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us today, and welcome to the podcast. Pleasure. Thank you. Yes, thank you. To get us started, would you both mind taking a moment to tell us what you thought of this chapter? I can start, since Jonathan didn't beat me to it. I thought it was really a beautiful chapter. One of the things I liked about it was framing it around Susie Young Gates, and also it's being framed in terms of two really important conferences, April 1917, when war was declared, and then the October conference when Joseph F. Smith referred briefly to the vision that he had, but didn't articulate it. And so it's a fairly narrow period of time, but I, I really liked its structure and found lots of really interesting and sometimes poignant things mentioned in it. Yeah, these are the most important elements of life. We're talking about death and children and family and sickness and the choices that we make that determine how we live and how we die. Consequently, it resonates on multiple levels for us, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually. I appreciate you saying that, Jonathan, that it just can resonate with us on so many different levels. And something that stuck out to me that I'd love to ask you two about is just kind of this comparison about reading about the flu epidemic and then what's going on in our lives today, still dealing with COVID-19 and its repercussions. So I would love to know, what did you think about that after reading about this great flu pandemic? Well, one always thinks that the comparison between, you know, a place where we're wearing masks and things have been closed and so forth. And I think it's striking to notice the similarities, but maybe some of the differences might be helpful. For one thing, we have, as we have today, the capacity to speak electronically, which they didn't have. They didn't have cell phones. They didn't have social media or anything like that. So when actually it was on October 9th that all public meetings were closed in Utah. And uh, from that point until church services reopened January 5th for a while and the temples reopened on the 6th, you have to imagine how people felt not being able to meet, not being able to meet by Zoom as we have and so forth, just this feeling of isolation all the way up through Christmas. You know, no Christmas programs was just, I think, a much harder thing in terms of the physical and emotional isolation. Another difference is a war was going on and about half of the U.S. soldiers who died in the war died of the flu pandemic, which sort of relates to another issue, and that is that the most vulnerable 
were age 25 to 34, and so it was the younger group. And it was much, much more deadly than the pandemic that we're in. But you do see people wearing masks, even when parades at armistice and so forth. But in some ways, the differences sort of strike me more than the similarities. Even when Joseph F. Smith died, and there's a little inset under his picture in the Deseret News saying there will be no public funeral. So there was no funeral for Joseph F. Smith. And a second wave of the pandemic started in the early part of 1919. And so April conference itself was delayed until June. So the only time I know the conference has been shifted because of a health issue. Anyway, those are just some differences. I mean, the similarities are striking, but I think the differences are well worth pointing out. Yeah, I think that the COVID-19 pandemic gives us an increased ability to empathize with the flu of 1918. The scale is vastly different, but it gives us some insight. For example, the relief societies in the early 20th century helped prepare the bodies of those who passed away in many cases. And for example, in 1918, for every 100 Relief Society sisters that year, they prepared almost eight bodies for burial. So you can imagine what that was like for the wards. Thankfully, and fortunately, we have not been exposed to that degree of mortality with the COVID-19 vaccine although we have lost too many of our people. Yeah, that's the other thing I should have said, that there was no vaccine in that period either. And so it's a good observation. Thank you both so much. Well, there are several really important themes that can be analyzed or studied in this particular chapter. And there's some really important, for the church, almost crucial new insights that we receive We know that genealogy is becoming increasingly important to the church and its members, and we have these tragic, heartbreaking moments in this chapter. So, Jonathan, what are some of the other experiences of loss that President Smith has had with regards to his family members? What are some of the other events that had prepared him for this particular occasion? Well, I think it's important to note that God does not introduce death and pain and suffering in order to get a specific result. I don't think that God slayed Joseph F. Smith's children so that we could have the revelation that we do. Nevertheless, it is clear, I believe, that the experience that Joseph F. Smith had informed his inquiry and informed and perhaps sensitized him to issues that might not otherwise have been within his perceptual framework. So, for example, he lost his father as a child quite traumatically. His mother passed away when he was young, and he had a series of children that also passed away. When his son Albert Jesse was two years old, he passed away and he wrote to his sister about it. He wrote, once more, and now for the sixth time, By inexorable will of inscrutable providence, we have been called upon to part with one of our dearest, most precious treasures. This time, the pitiless monster, Death, has chosen for his shining mark our beautiful, intelligent, bright, and lovely little Albert. Then he goes on to cry, why is it so? Why, God, did it have to be? Joseph F. Smith felt deeply and emotionally. We've often heard church members state how the plan of salvation comforts them in moments of death. And that is absolutely true. But in some ways, the restored gospel has the potential of increasing 
the poignancy of death because the relationships that we have are imbued with the love that comes from gospel living. And so they can be at once terrible and awful and crushing. And Joseph F. Smith has a long history of such experiences. And so he wrestled with death on an intimate level. Jonathan, it was interesting to me while reading this chapter because I've been aware of this revelation my entire life, and this is what I've been taught. You know, this revelation is now a well-established element of Latter-day Saint theology. But I'm wondering, before this revelation, what understanding did Latter-day Saints have of what happened in the afterlife? And then how was this revelation received? Okay. First, we have to understand that the idea that Christ descended to hell is scriptural in the Bible. And many Christians believe in a concept called, in Latin, the desensus ad inferos, or the descent into hell. And Latter-day Saints have shared that narrative. Now, what we have beyond the Christian context is an understanding of proxy work for the dead. And with Joseph Smith's revelation of baptism for the dead and his preaching that indicated that we would have the opportunity to be sealed to the dead and do temple work for them, we had this possibility for a greater understanding. Church leaders such as Brigham Young and Wilford Woodruff believed and taught that Latter-day Saints who passed away would certainly engage in the work of salvation by preaching the gospel to those who did not have the opportunity to hear it in this life. Wilford Woodruff himself lost a child of 20 years old, and when he did so, he speculated at first that perhaps his son was needed on the other side, which is, I think, a natural response. We want to understand why the people we love are taken too soon. He later prays about this and explains to James Talmadge, who was at that point not an apostle, but a confidant of the First Presidency, that he believed his son was working in the spirit world to help spread the gospel of Christ. So we have, as a people, had a belief that all of humanity will have an opportunity to be saved, that through the work of the temple, but also through the efforts of evangelizing the dead on the other side of the veil, the gospel would be available to all of humanity. Maybe I can just add a bit to that. That was a wonderful discussion, and that is that Joseph F. Smith himself taught about this earlier than this vision of 1918. In 1910, he was speaking to a group of MIA conference and talked about this missionary work going on behind the veil. And at a funeral address in 1911, he even spoke of Susie Young Gates' response to so beautifully that not only is this work going on in the other world, but also that women who have been set apart, ordained work, called to it, and so forth, who participated in temple work, will be among those who serve valiantly in proclaiming the dead, especially to their deceased sisters. So it's not something that he hadn't been aware of. It just wasn't articulated with the kind of fullness that the vision provided. So, George, what do you think was so significant about the timing? I mean, why did Latter-day Saints have to wait so long before this revelation was received and presented to the church? My appreciation for the timing of it has really grown the more I've studied it. One of the things that strikes me is how you have these two great death-making events, the First World War and the flu pandemic. 
And this vision comes right where those two intersect. The war is not yet over. There are another 38 days. The great American battle, if we can claim one in the First World War, Muzargan campaign, was just beginning. And also the flu pandemic was just in its very beginning. That same issue of the Deseret News that reports on the conference has a column that says Spanish influenza still spreads over the land that speaks of the deaths in Philadelphia, New York, the army camps, and so forth. And farther into that same issue of the paper, it notes the first recorded case of Spanish influenza, as it was called, from a soldier taken off a troop chain in Ogden. But the revelation is on the 3rd of October. On the 9th, it was burgeoning to such a degree that all public meetings were closed on the 9th of October. So it just comes right where those two intersect. And I think you have a world that's in agony and is going to be even in greater agony. And that the vision is one of enormous comfort. It strikes me as interesting that the first publication was in the public space of a newspaper, the Deseret News, on the 30th of November. And it seems to me that it sort of makes the consoling teachings available to a larger audience than simply members of the church. Let's get the sense that in a way addressed to all the world, the Lord's living prophet in the last weeks of his life is giving a vision through his prophetic powers that is a vision of consolation to all the world. So the, the timing of it just strikes me as really compelling. Jonathan, is there anything comparable to this revelation in wider Christian belief or theology? I mean, how significant of a departure is this from the rest of Christianity's belief systems? There is a long tradition of Christ descending into what um, is traditionally called hell. There is a pseudepigraphal work, the Gospel of Nicodemus, that talks about this idea. So Christians have looked for ways to find comfort in the exclusivity of the gospel, but also in face of mortality among their family and friends. It's a terrible thing to consider how many people have died without the gospel, and at the same time, consider that many believe that death without conviction of Christ is a infinite suffering in a terrible physical and emotional torture. Christians of all sorts have struggled with this idea. And Joseph Smith introduces a measure of universalism, which is expanded by Wilford Woodruff in the 1890s. And again, with Joseph F. Smith's vision. But there are elements that we can trace among our Christian brothers and sisters that find um, resonance within each of these visions. Thank you so much for that. And then just as a follow-up to that, what do we know about how other Christians reacted to news of the revelation? I don't know. I wish I did because it seems like it's something that would have resonated, would have comforted, and I wish I had a sense of its large reception, but I haven't seen how that registered elsewhere. It just sort of stands to comfort all of us into the future, but I hope that it would comfort some even at the time because there was just this universal worldwide grief and suffering that it addresses so beautifully. I was thinking about what Jonathan said a moment ago about these uh, representations of Christ. I'm a medievalist, and what, you know, we always see images of what's called the harrowing of hell. One of my favorite is from a baptismal font in Herefordshire. There's a school of Romanesque carving that's so beautiful. 
but there's one where there are tendrils entwining this person who needs rescue, and Christ reaches out and pulls him right through those tendrils. Sometimes people talk about the herring of hell as just rescuing the Old Testament patriarchs and so forth, but this one clearly envisions Christ individually rescuing somebody who is entangled and needs rescue, and I find that really poignant, and it sort of resonates with my feeling about this section of the Doctrine and Covenants, this vision. Jonathan, do you have anything to add with regards to the timing of the revelation? As George said, I think that this confluence of events, all dealing with mortality on a scale that the world had never seen before, coupled with the intimate, personal aspects that relate to Joseph F. Smith and his own family, resulted in a moment that was captured by Joseph F. Smith in that vision. Jonathan, I love how you mentioned that in addition to these massive worldwide events that are causing lots of tragic deaths, there was on President Smith's level this intimate types of death that he's experiencing. And I think that that really sets the scene for this revelation and helps us understand truly how meaningful it was to him and to the church at this time. And in this chapter, we read of Sousa comforting President Smith after a general conference. And it just made me think, how well do they know each other? What were the circumstances of this meeting that they had? So Sousa and Joseph were lifelong friends. They comforted each other in person, but they also corresponded. Joseph F. Smith's papers and Susie Young Gates' papers are full of letters that they exchanged, dealing with some of the most important topics that we still wrestle with today, women and priesthood, mortality. They were the best kinds of friends. Thank you so much for that. George, did you want to add? Yeah, maybe. I just remembered that they coincided in Hawaii for a while, and that's where Sousa lost two of her children. And so there was a specific occasion where Joseph F., with his experience of childhood deaths, was able to comfort and console her. He was some 18 years older than she, as I remember, but they were still, as Jonathan says, lifelong friends. I just love those small examples throughout this book that show these more personal relationships and it really helps me relate to the situations and the people in the book. I really appreciate it. One thing that strikes me, just if I can add about Sousa, I mean, all of her amazing work in genealogy and the miracle of her life being preserved and so forth is discussed earlier in the chapter. When he gives her the revelation to read while she's there at his sickbed and her husband and several Smith family members are there, she is so taken with the idea that Eve is mentioned. And I think it actually goes beyond this. I was almost surprised that she doesn't mention it because among the noble and great ones that are listed in the Revelation, it starts with Father Adam, and then it goes immediately to Eve. And she's the only figure that has an attributive adjective, our glorious mother Eve and her righteous daughters. That must have just resonated with Susie Young Gates. I'm surprised she didn't include it in her journal and her letter to Elizabeth McCune, but it always strikes me as very, very forceful about Eve and her status within our theology, within our understanding of the heavens, and within this vision itself. Absolutely. Thank you for pointing that out. Now, both of you have written and published about this period and some of the events taking place in the church and amongst its leaders. Jonathan, I wonder if you could start us off by talking about what kinds of materials exist out there for historians and scholars to consult 
were there personal letters? Do we have administrative letters? And how easy is it to access some of these records? Thanks for the question. Since the beginning of the Restoration, Latter-day Saints have recognized God's commandment that a record be kept. And many men and women in the church have kept journals and diaries. They've also kept correspondence, both personally and institutionally. And church leaders at this time really kept a wealth of records for us today as scholars and believers to access in order to contextualize and understand better the work of Christ in the period. So for example, we have Joseph F. Smith's personal papers, which include thousands of letters. Um, his personal journals are mostly available to scholars and are digitized by the church history library. We have the diaries of his counselors in the first presidency and other apostles at that time that are also public and available. Now, along with these personal papers, there are institutional records that have been kept the First Presidency Letterpress, which has been available to scholars in the past. We have church meeting minutes that church historians at the time transferred into a volume called the Journal History. And so we can access the very minutes of the First Presidency and Quorum of the Twelve during this period. Beyond the institutional records, we have a vast body of journals and diaries and correspondence kept by the lay membership of the church, women and men, old and young, that help us understand the lived experience of church members and of the church as a whole during this period. And I just can't help but think of these records being so vital to church history and having a better understanding of this time period and the people, but they're also vital to us personally, especially as we're doing our family history and understanding who we are and, and where we come from and this legacy that we have. And that was one of the topics in this chapter that I love too was genealogy. And I just feel like this revelation that President Smith had would kind of spark a new interest in genealogy. Am I wrong? I'm just wondering what was the genealogical efforts like before the revelation and then how did the revelation affect those efforts? To answer your question, and perhaps George will have more on this, after Wilford Woodruff revealed a change to the way we perform sealings in the temple in the 1890s, the church focused on doing genealogical work. The genealogical society was created, and the saints shifted and sought out their ancestors in a way that allowed them to be sealed to their parents, their parents to their grandparents, and on as far back as they possibly could. But as Sousa notes in the chapter, this work was often perceived as boring and less interesting than other aspects of the gospel. George, do you wanna jump in? Yeah, actually uh, she talks several times about how she's getting pushback from some of the Release Society general board and so forth about the lessons that she's writing are too hard. And, you know, could we have more of the spiritual side, sort of doctrinal side of the reasons for genealogical work and not the technical side that allows us actually to make the connections? So that is interesting. And that she and Joseph Fielding Smith were just the two great driving forces in the early days of the Genealogical Society. There's a book by 
James Allen and Jesse Embry and Khalil Mayer um, called Hearts Turn to the Fathers. It's the history of the genealogical society. And first big section of it deals with Susie Young Gates and her many contributions. But I really like what you're saying about it's being much more than in terms of establishing a connection between us and how the generations are, are bound together in feeling, in love, and so forth, and not simply in terms of the temple ceiling, as important as that is, is something I think each of us has experienced in our own quests. And to add on that, I think what the vision does is precisely in its name. It is a vision. And these ideas of work beyond the veil, as we've said before, have been promoted by church leaders before this moment. But this is such a vivid explanation. It's a vision. We can see like President Smith saw in the text, the arrival of Christ to those who waited beyond the veil. And it's that sort of vision that animates a new generation of work because it is so much easier to see and relate to. Yeah. Even Joseph F. Smith, in terms of his own experience, I mean, looking at the noble and great ones, when he sees his father, Hiram, I love how the chapter points out, he hasn't seen him for 74 years. President Ballard talked about this in a church history symposium that revolved around Joseph F. Smith, and he quoted from the recollection of Preston Nibley, who was there with his father, Charles Nibley, who was one of Joseph F. Smith's closest friends, when in 1905 they visited Nauvoo. And Joseph F. pointed to the corner by the mansion house. He says, this is where I stood when my father rode off. He picked me up, held me in his arms, and then rode off. You think about a vivid connection of father and son. I mean, he had named his oldest son Hiram. He had just blessed the new baby who was born to his daughter-in-law, Ida Bowman Smith, just weeks before, and named him Hiram. And there's this continuity of love across generations that is really, I think, very moving. Thank you so much for this. I think one of the lines in the chapter that really summarizes it is when it talks about a cloud of sorrow settling over the Smiths. Prior to the vision, there is so many bad things happening, you know, so many hard things happening, which of course are, are, are natural and part of life, but still there's some really difficult things to carry. And, and hopefully readers might be able to see and, and read this chapter and recognize that no one is spared from those hardships, not prophets, not the apostles. Everyone will have these questions, will have these feelings of despair that can come along. And we'll see that later in volume as well. So one of the questions I wanted to ask about was a little bit more about President Smith. And we see this change. We see the end of the war and then this almost new battle that emerges with the influenza, which is kind of taking hold. What do we know about President Smith and his view of the war? We know that some church leaders are very against conflict and others who are happy to participate. You know, where does President Smith sit on the spectrum? Well, when the war broke out in 1914, the British saints were immediately engaged in it. Canadian saints were immediately engaged in it. Others from Commonwealth countries. The United States wasn't. And it wasn't until 1917 that members from the United States enlisted 
and his own son Calvin was wounded twice at the front and so forth. But there's a first presidency message that came out in December of 1914. It says, while rejoicing over the birth of the incomparable one, the light of our gladness is overshadowed with the war clouds that have darkened the skies of Europe. And our songs and salutations of joy and goodwill are rendered sadly discordant by the thunders of artillery and the groans of the wounded and dying echoing from afar, but harrowing to our souls as the awful tidings come sounding o'er the sea. You may remember that his son Hiram Mack was in Europe, actually on the continent, when the war broke out and was arrested twice, suspected of spying for the British. He was the European mission president at the time. And I think President Smith was concerned about even the possibility, which I think turned out to be true, that members of the church were on opposing sides. I know of a faithful Latter-day Saint who was killed in the Battle of the Somme. Who knows if another member of the church was facing him across that line. But in the address that he gives in April 2017, he urges a feeling of, I mean, he's always a peacemaker, always longing for peace and so forth, but still he recognizes the need and supports those who want to enlist. President Wilson declared war that very day of April conference, and there were a lot who signed up and served. He obviously hated war, <laughs> but recognized the necessity of valiant service within the war. I think for me as a European, it's always been very interesting, and as we've read through the book so far, to see a people who have felt persecuted or oppressed by even portions of the American government at times, and they've fled the United States. Right. And then here we are just a couple decades later, after finally settling in Utah and getting used to things and becoming part of the United States again, but here they are some of the family members having undergone really difficult experiences because of government-sanctioned acts and so on. Right. But they're willing to now fight for this country. Yeah. I just always found that remarkable that people could forgive and move on so easily. Yeah. Immigrant families from Germany, for example, sons of German immigrants signing up to fight. And it must have been painful for them, but they, mm -hmm. they did it. Like all the chapters in Saints, this one covers a lot of ground. And George and Jonathan, we would just love to know, what do you hope readers of this chapter will come away with having a better understanding or knowing better? Go ahead, George. Oh, I don't know. This is a period where absence is really dominant in thinking because there were so many people who died in the war, for example, who have no known graves. You have all these memorials to the missing so there's this hunger to know the fate of the dead. People didn't have the closure that we typically think, okay, we go to a funeral, the body's in the casket, we reverence it, and so forth. And so many people didn't have that. There was just this sense of absence and even wondering about the status of the body. One of the things I love about the Revelation is how those who are without bodies considered their being without bodies as a bondage which sort of affirms the eternal value of the body in the, the scheme of things. But I've read really widely in the literature of mourning, and I've just come, even in terms of his personal writings, like the one that Jonathan shared, I found few statements more poignant than those of Joseph F. Smith. He wrote memorial poems. He always remembered the 
anniversaries of death. I don't know anyone else in church history who, as Jonathan points out, even though we take comfort in our theology, felt grief so deeply. This coming on the heels of the death of Hiram Mack and on the death of his daughter-in-law, Hiram's widow, Ida, even despite these worldwide events, I guess I just think of it partly just in terms of the enormous comfort it must have brought to Joseph F. Smith personally. And I find that really affecting. I agree. I think that this chapter and the experiences of Joseph F. Smith give us a model, a way of processing grief and our own experiences of tragedy, that to feel grief is acceptable and okay. And I don't want to say that all the bad that happens in the universe is for some potential upside. I believe that we live in a chaotic universe and that tragedy happens. What is possible is that God can turn our experiences to good. And in some cases, he can turn tragedy and death into comfort and glory. And when it doesn't, that we can perhaps rely on those around us to help find it. Thank you both so much for joining us today and for sharing your fascinating insights. It's been a pleasure to have you both on the podcast and thank you once again for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Love the chapter. Yes, thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed it. We hope you took away some new insights into this volume. And we would love to hear your thoughts, opinions, questions, and insights from this chapter of Saints. And you can email saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. It would be great to hear from you.